Hi everyone, this is Brandon with a quick word before the podcast. This holiday season, if you're planning to donate to any nonprofits, please consider supporting Glass Tire's annual fund. All of the money we raise goes straight back into our reporting on Texas artists, galleries, museums, and more. If you'd like to make a one-time donation or become a sustaining monthly supporter, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. One more time, that's glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to this week's Art Dirt, where we discuss what we call topical art topics. We know that's repetitive, but we like it. Um, I'm Christina Reese. And I'm Brandon Zeck. So, um, you know, we're going to talk about the monolith. Talk about topical. Yeah, talk about topical, although it is now gone. Um, We're going to talk about a strange object that showed up or was discovered recently in the Utah desert in a very remote part of the uh, of Red Rock West and um, and has since disappeared. Um, sort there are a lot of conspiracy theories around it, uh, but one of them was, if you want to call it a conspiracy theory, was that it was uh, placed there by John McCracken, a fine, fine artist. Uh, we both are big fans of his, although he died in 2011, and they think that it was probably there, probably put there around 2016. Um, And his uh, mega dealer, David Zwerner, (laughs) weighed in publicly on the New York Times and other outlets and said, yes, it's a McCracken, although his uh, people who worked in the gallery (laughs) said, no, it's not. The people who dealt with John McCracken were like, yeah, maybe not. No. So that was a bit of fun. But anyway, we'll talk about the Bonolith, and... um, We'll talk about, you know, sort of how the internet uh, responded to it and, and human beings in the wake of how the internet responded to it, how they responded to it. Well, also, actually, we're going to talk about John McCracken because... Um, because we never have an opportunity to talk about John McCracken. And John McCracken's wonderful. He's great. He's He's really great. And I think, you know, whereas at first I was uh, sort of... <laughs> on Zwerner for saying, yeah, it's a McCracken. I was like, no, that's brilliant. It's brilliant PR and it's good for John McCracken. So a lot of people who probably hadn't heard of him or thought about him or, um, you know, delved into his history and his works, um, maybe have done so since then. And I know that Zwerner was planning on having a show of his works, I believe opening this month. So again, brilliant PR strategy. But yeah, we like McCracken, and you and I also did a, more of a deep dive into McCracken and his work uh, because of this, and because we knew we were going to record this today, and we wanted to sort of fan the flames of appreciation. So let me just backtrack a little bit. So what happened was some Bureau land management guys were flying a helicopter over the public land of, uh, of the Utah desert. They were trying to spot bighorn sheep. They saw a big stainless steel monolith down kind of in the crevice of a canyon, about 10 feet tall, three-sided. That was on November 18th. They released the news of it that following Monday, so around the 21st. I think one of the things is that Joe Rogan uh, got wind of it and put it on his site and talked about it, which of course means the internet really exploded because if Joe Rogan does anything, uh, everyone goes nuts. 
But then by the Friday, five days later, it was gone. And there's actually a photographer who was out there. As you may imagine, uh, people tried to find this thing very quickly, even though it was in an incredibly obscure location. So Redditors, you know, started using Google Earth. Somebody managed to um, find its location. And This is a really good example just of the power of the internet nowadays. And maybe, I mean, maybe especially right now, the power of the internet when everyone is just kind of either bored out of their minds or is just sitting behind their computer 20 four seven i mean the the fact that they were able to find this it wasn't even in a busy metropolitan area like they had to go off of the glyphs the space of the utah desert i mean you get vague geographic info just from the people who from the land management people who discovered it but still i mean come on and there's a there's a story i forget what publication but we'll link it in the comments of this post there's a story of the the two guys who were allegedly the first people to kind of get on site and find it. And they talk about, they, they were there seeing it when a helicopter rode in of some YouTube guys. So it's like, this has all the hallmarks of being like the stereotypical viral story of like, this thing is here. It's aliens. Everyone's making jokes about it. Is it this artwork? Now it's gone. What happened? <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's the weirdest, I don't know if we can call it an end to 2020, but it's the weirdest kind of capstone on 2020 yet. Yeah, it's very fitting. And no matter how remote these things, these kinds of things are, Instagrammers will find a way to get there, including by helicopter. Um, yeah, I watched that video, actually, of the guys who went out there and knocked on it. This is a three-sided stainless steel thing. You can see the rivets in it. By the way, it's, I mean, I, I can't speak to how well made it is. I didn't see it in person. As an art critic, I have to say it that way. But um, it, it does not look like a McCracken. Uh, despite the fact that he did do uh, three-sided stainless steel uh, planks or monoliths, you know, um, also there are some people who are very pedantic about the English language who hate the fact that uh, everyone is using the term monolith because monolith, if you're being really, really strict about it, is a uh, geographical formation. It's a, it's a stone. It's natural. It's not man-made. But, I mean, the English language is a living, breathing thing, and we get to change it as we move along. So we're calling it a monolith. One guy was out there, a, a photographer was out there when uh, four guys showed up with uh, removal equipment and a truck. You know, they weren't wearing uh, land management uniforms, but they just uh, pretty much silently got in there and took a little while because the thing is really was really anchored into the earth, which is, you know, one of the reasons the conspiracy theories were rife is because this thing wouldn't have been easy to get there or to put up. Um, it would have been quite a, quite a pain in the ass and it was a pain in the ass to take down, but these guys took it down. Now, in and around that topic is, you know, did they take it down because they found it annoying? Did they take it down because they were of a kind of almost like a stewardship of the desert? Because, that was a part of public land that people just really couldn't and didn't get to. It was very pristine and, you know, a human invasion of, you know, people wanting to take selfies, etc., was not exactly great for this uh, section of public land. So maybe these guys just wanted to take it down because they were tired of 
human invaders uh, to the area. Yeah, based on the remarks reported by the New York Times that the, the people who removed it allegedly said to the other people who were there, like one of them said, this is why you don't leave trash in the desert. Another one of them said, leave no trace as they walked away. I mean, it's a very land western you know kind kind of thing to be like this is my responsibility even though it's on public land god knows what the utah like land management would have done with it if they would have left it up like how long it would have taken them to take it down because it's private property on public land it's like i don't even want to know the conspiracy theories if the government took it down i don't know (laughs) if this is better like kind of weird blurry bad photos of these four guys in like puffy jackets hauling it away but i mean that feels like the natural cycle of of this story everything's all sped up now because everyone has access to all the information all the time and i'm not surprised that they haven't taken credit for taking it down i'm a little surprised that no one has taken credit for putting it up that does make it funnier and kind of more clever there are i think two guys who have taken credit for taking it down. One of them is like a professional sportsman in Moab, Utah. He's like a slackline performer. <laughs> and then another uh, another guy who's like his friend also. To what you're saying, Christina, the more interesting thing is that no one is taking the credit for putting it there. Now's the chance for fame, right? Now's the chance to jump on it. It's strange, isn't it? And there have been two copycat uh, monoliths that have gone up since then, one in Romania and one in California. I think the one in Romania was up for a grand total of like 24 hours before somebody took that down. You know, yeah, conspiracy, science fiction, and we'll tie that into McCracken in just a second. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people compared it to the monolith in uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick, the 1968 film of course the very famous opening scene of the giant monolith out in the desert and the apes find it and it changes um the course of evolution there's a lot of science fiction in this kind of thing and if it's a hoax or a joke um it's a clever one and of course it's a land art joke as well if an artist put it out there um (laughs) which is good for us we appreciate that i mean i'm not particularly for trampling on pristine desert to put a joke out in the middle of the desert but then again i don't know how much harm this would do i will say that i think the photographer who managed to uh, capture images of the guys who were taking it down i think he was also saying that by the time he showed up there were like 70 cars you know in the place that was closest to where you could park before you had to, you know, on foot access this thing. So yeah, there was kind of a, a descent of humans to uh, to see it. Extraterrestrials. Do we want to get into McCracken yet, or are we still talking about the monolith? I want to get into McCracken because you touched on this, but David Zwerner just got right in there. I, I don't know who reported it first. It may have been the art newspaper when they put their article up about this monolith, said that it looked like the work of John McCracken. Don't quote me on this, but I think that may have kind of been the first mention or the first tie-in. And then I could very easily see Zwerner, if this was the order of events, see Zwerner being like, yes, yes, it is. (laughs) And by the way, we have a show of his work opening pretty soon. Uh, Zwerner is a really good dealer, I gotta say. And we we can poop all over the mega dealers or whatever, but I mean, he's... He's earned his credentials. He knows art. He's got a really good feel for it. I want to say of the mega galleries, he's probably one of the more um, art-sensitive ones. I say that. I haven't met him. 
Uh, he's got an incredible program. He's he's held uh, McCracken's estate since I think the late 90s and has had a number of solo exhibitions of uh, McCracken's work. And in fact, in terms of the stainless steel work, I believe he was the one who introduced McCracken to the fabricators who started to make the stainless steel uh McCracken's, whereas McCracken himself makes all the resin ones, the color ones that we're so familiar with that are so juicy and satisfying. In fact, the Manil collection here in Houston has one. It's a great one. It's from 1989. It's a beautiful blue every time I see it, and I have seen it a number of times. I'm like, I need to paint an entire room with this color. Color was a huge, huge aspect of what McCracken was going for. In fact, he thinks of it as a material so, going back into the alien and extraterrestrial thing, McCracken was, and we will link to an amazing conversation between McCracken and Francis Culpit. They had a conversation that was on Art in America a number of years ago. In fact, it was in 2011, which is the year he died, about his work. And he's such an evolved human being. He, I, would, I would think of him as really the true definition of a humanist in that he seem to believe in the potential of individuals and individuals sort of transcending our profane existence. And um, he definitely believed in extraterrestrials. He believed in time travel. He believed in, um, you know, multidimensionality. He believed to some degree that his own work touched on it to some degree, although that wasn't, you know, he, he felt like there was something very active about the shape and color of what he was doing kind of in the, in the way that some people think of crystals. That interview, I thought it was really interesting how how opinionated he was and yet how kind of open he left his work. Like his work tried and, and succeeded in doing a lot of different things. And it seems like he doesn't or didn't really want to pigeonhole it into you know, being extraterrestrial or being about the hand or about the hand versus the machine or being about, like, if anything, it was kind of about color, but it was about the experiential transcendence of what color is. And if you just Google his name, even if you see his sculptures, you can tell that color is the main part. I mean, these are not premixed colors. He is paying a lot of attention to that. And I feel like that experience was mirrored uh, in my experience the first time I, I saw the Menil piece, which is called Island. So these plank works, uh, they lean up against the wall. They almost look like a piece of wood that has been powder coated, but instead it's polyester resin and fiberglass to kind of give it this smooth, shiny surface. And the first time I saw this piece, I hadn't really heard of McCracken, and I didn't know what to think. There's not a ton of his work in Houston, at least to my knowledge. This is the only piece, I think, in a public collection in Houston. And it's like, after learning more about him and after looking at this piece again, that initial experience that I had was kind of the undefined openness that I read from him in his description of his work. Yeah, you know, it's an impulse that you see, you know, the thing, the leaning the thing against the wall instead of installing it on the wall or having it out in the middle of the floor. Uh, I would say every year across the world, mm -hmm. BFA and MFA students do exactly the same thing <laughs> with their work. And may, they may think it's new, but it's just, it's just a human thing to kind of uh, mark the transition between one kind of architectural uh point and another and it's a good one one thing that he did say in this interview and i loved this is that while he's fine with the term minimalism um and that people need kind of entry points and sort of tags on their work for people to even feel like they can access it um 
psychologically or mentally. He didn't like finish fetish. And I don't like that term either. And I think even though his pieces are so beautifully finished and the surfaces are like liquid, I mean, they're just phenomenal. And he did hand make all of these planks. The resin is a huge part of that. Um, but I like it that what he said was that and what a lot of conceptual artists would agree with is, you know, he comes up with an idea and of what he wants an object to be, and then he finds a way to make that happen. It was not about the process of making it happen. It was about coming up with an object that matches what was in his imagination. So using materials to make the thing that he dreamed up. And I think that's what a lot of conceptual artists do um, and do very, very well, because it's about the idea more than you know, the idea of finish fetish. That wasn't the value of the work for him. Um, even though they're beautifully done, you can actually see his hand in the work. Um, but there's something uh, almost even more beautiful and poetic about that. The stainless steel stuff that came later, I can't really speak to. I mean, that's a whole different thing. They're drained of color. There is no color. Mm -hmm. And machines made them. But he did say that if there was a process for making his planks, his color planks, that he didn't necessarily have to do himself, he would have used it. Um, but, you know, he had to come up with the with the method for making these things as perfect as possible using his own hands. Yeah, he just floats between it. It's like the thing that's important kind of is the hand, but the thing that's not important in the sculptures, it's so interesting to hear him talk and it kind of blends with, Christina, you mentioned him being like a really evolved human. It kind of blends in his worldview. Uh, he believed that aliens essentially have been among us, but that we're not, we're kind of not programmed to see them and that they're, you know, trying to kind of move us forward in life. He believed in, you could kind of say like a hand of God, but it's an extraterrestrial hand guiding things. Or even his point about the fact that in, in the terms of like time travel, that it's actually our future selves who are looking back on our present selves mm -hmm. and are, are sort of watching and maybe slightly guiding. I mean, he's really a proponent of that idea of we know more than we know we know you know mm -hmm. which is not a conspiracy theory it's a life philosophy and um and very different from the kind of conspiracy theories that are roiling around the monolith that's also something that i never would have expected just by viewing this work alone mm. i mean it totally makes sense that he is kind of within the minimalist canon if that's if we're going to call it that but when i think about his work even though it is pure form pure color i don't think about it as minimalist you know maybe that's because it's so influenced by california car culture and surf culture it's like these planks are uncarved surfboards right and and maybe one of the reasons i don't think of him like solidly within minimalism and this isn't to say minimalistic works aren't this but i feel like his work is really sexy Oh, God, that's so sensual. Yeah. Yeah. And, that you know, that's not to say that, like, a Donald Judd steel sculpture isn't sexy. It's kind of, like, fetishistic and machine sexy in its own way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But there's a there's a there's something different about McCracken's that I'm trying to put my finger on. It's like, it's like they're supple, whereas so few other minimalist works are supple while also being perfectly formed while also being minimal. It's that resin surface and his slight hand. It's like you can just tell that there's a little something human in them. Yeah, a little bit of movement, right? It's again, it's like liquid. It's like wa it's like a thick, dark sort of mercury-like water. It's a, there's a real density to it. 
Whereas you're right, I think the sexiness of Judd is more like a J.G. Ballard kind of strangeness, a kind of a machine sexiness. But um, I, I agree with all that. And I was thinking about his kind of science fiction bent and his belief in uh, aliens being among us. And I was thinking about the idea of the monolith. And he liked the idea of the monolith. The big dumb object, a, a BDO is a science fiction term for a kind of a monolithic type thing that could be an all-knowing or omniscient object. And dumb doesn't mean lack of intelligence. Dumb just means it doesn't speak. So we get to project what we want to onto it, which is so true of McCracken's work, you know? Um, that, And I don't know that that's necessarily what people think of the big dumb, dumb object as being, is that we get to project our personal religion onto whatever the monolith is. But that is what it is in the in the end it certainly isn't a space odyssey you know Kubrick never tells us what that thing is um and McCracken doesn't necessarily need to tell us what his things are we just get to enjoy them as kind of a visceral experience um you saw a show of his did you not as Werner I did back in 2017 in the spring uh there was a show of I believe there were some of the plank works. It was some wall works, some uh, freestanding works, if I'm not mistaken. You know, it's so interesting to be kind of surrounded by them in a space. I hadn't ever had that experience with his work before. You know, seeing installation shots, uh, the show looks a little unimpressive. (laughs) Um, And... I mean, his work in general, you know, if you really wanted to, you could kind of use it for like the stupid contemporary art. It's like a a blue rectangle or it's a blue rectangle leaning up against the wall. Ooh, what's the what's the appeal of that? But then you get in the middle of them. It's it's like a color experience, especially being in like a white gallery space. It's just kind of like each one slaps you as you walk by it. You know, it's it's a different experience than just seeing one by itself. I don't even know if it's necessarily better or worse than seeing one by itself. Because if you see one by itself, yeah, it's just different. If you see one by itself, that one slaps you as you walk by. Because it's so simple but so complex, yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, all of this said about McCracken, I mean, after seeing more close-up photos and details of this monolith, and, and David Zwerner's gallery has already disowned it. Um, this monolith was not McCracken. It had rivets. Like oh it, my was, gosh. It, it had seams that you could see. It, it did not express any yeah, ethos yeah. that I think his work would have had, even if he did leave it in the desert, I think he would have done a better job. Yeah, I had a few people who were texting or emailing, like, hey, is, it, is this a McCracken? It's like, hell no, it's not a McCracken. <laughs> if you know his work at all, you know that's not a McCracken. I would love, I, I envy that you saw that show. Uh, I would love to be surrounded by a lot of McCracken. I think this brings up the idea that, I think it's it's time for a museum retrospective. It's been a very long time since he's had one. I think it's been since the 90s. Um do it here, do it in Houston, do it at the Manil. Um, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Gosh, it'd be so beautiful. Well, you know, there's connection. McCracken mentions being inspired by Burnett Newman. You know, you can kind of see the zips of Burnett Newman's paintings. It's like those taken and perfected and blown up are McCracken planks leaned against the wall. There's, there's not 
a lack of precedent. So who knows? <laughs> oh, I know. And Ellsworth Kelly. And I know it's just, they, they're all kind of, of, a, of a piece. And, and he was very much a California guy. Very McCracken was very associated with Los Angeles. Um, but he did ultimately move out to New Mexico as a lot of his fellow Los Angelinos did in terms of artists um, and was real happy out there. But yeah, I mean, Texas wouldn't be a bad place for a McCracken retrospective in that, in that respect. Um, yeah, the DMA doesn't have one of his pieces. I do not think the MFAH has one of his pieces. So I, I don't know, uh, what permanent collections in Texas besides the Manila have one. Obviously he's got work at, uh, MoMA and the Guggenheim and the Whitney and et cetera. Um, yeah, so take, so take some time. We're going to leave a nice, long, juicy reading list for you. We'll, you'll get to see, um, reviews and um, op-eds and interviews, and you can take a look at his work. As for the the Utah monolith, rest in peace. Uh, rest in pieces. Um, God knows where it is now, and when anything like that will crop up again, uh, maybe tomorrow. And um, yeah, I'd love to know who did it, but at the same time, nah, I don't want to know at it all. Matter. I don't want to know at all. <laughs> it's, it's so much better as a mystery. I'm not into conspiracy theories at all, but um, you know, it was kind of fun while it lasted. I just wish that people hadn't, you know, just insisted on going out there to see it and for the sake of friggin' social media. We're curious. We're like the apes. We're curious. I know. We sure are. And we, we will forge ahead and, you know, hell or high water. We're, we're going to get to that, <laughs> that Utah monolith. Let's get out there. Um, so anyway, that's uh, that's it for Art Dirt this week. Uh, take a look at McCracken's work, and we'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, be safe and see some art. See some art. See some art.